We are going to discuss a few essential ideas on Stalin and the Stalin era in the Soviet Union. We will try to do so for at least an hour, and this should be of use for debates in worker circles and in other organizing groups. I am partial to both parties, and I will introduce everything by citing and referencing the dissident well-known in the West who's living in Germany. His name is Alexander Zinoviev, and when he was young, in 1937 and 1939, he prepared an attack with other comrades against Stalin and was imprisoned for this. And after having seen all the degeneration of the Soviet Union and the restoration of barbaric capitalism, said last year that, When I look over the entire history of Russia during this century, I must say that Stalin was the greatest political genius of the 20th century. It was rather surprising coming from the mouth of a man who made a career out of being an anti-communist. In the first point I want to approach, let's say, speaking from an ideological perspective, the question of Stalin as it has been raised for the past 40 years. The first thing I want to say is that when we see class struggle and when we see ideological struggles at the international level, it must be clearly and firmly said that Stalin and his work represent the working class, represent revolutionary forces, and represent anti-imperialist forces. The attitude surrounding Stalin is always an attitude of class. There is probably no other ideological question that expresses more clearly the true class position of different forces that present themselves on the world stage. Here in the West, starting from a young age, we are taught that in reality Stalin was a dictator, a terrorist, a criminal, and so on. Anything goes. The first thing I want to say listening to all of this is that one must realize that all revolutionaries and all revolutionary movements in all of history were treated with the exact same terms by the reactionary classes. Going all the way back to the French Revolution, the way in which the terror of the French Revolution was treated, you have word for word the customary manner in which we're thrown on our heads concerning Stalin. Take the Paris Commune. You have exactly the same thing. All this started with Marx, and in the exhibition here, there's a rather interesting graphic about this very phenomenon. In this graphic, you have someone with an axe to chop off the heads of the people who have been liquidated here. The houses are on fire, and normally you, have, you wait to see Stalin here, but instead you see old Marx. It's an anti-communist and anti-socialist Belgian drawing. What interests me is to underline the fact that since Marx, you have the same accusations of dictatorship and of all that you have heard of Stalin. You've heard about Marx and Lenin. The first to be called the Red Tsar by the forces of reaction 1924-1925 was already Lenin. Take, for instance, a country like ours, where the anti-communist campaign hit the hardest during the 30s. Since Belgium is a rather Catholic country, we had a surging of anti-communism during the Spanish Civil War. So the Spanish Revolution, the defense of the Spanish Republic, which was attacked by the fascists, was treated with the exact same terms that Stalin is presently treated with at all hours of the day. Here you have another graphic depicting the Spanish Civil War, and it's Stalin that is setting all of Europe on fire, who kills women, children, priests, and nuns, as we saw with another drawing. There's Stalin who says, This is my version of non-intervention. It's talking about Spain, where the Spanish fascists led an insurrection and were supported by the Hitlerian and Italian fascists. Yet it's Stalin who intervenes to kill women and children. When Nazism ascended during this time in Germany, the essential point of its propaganda during the entire Hitlerian period was not against the Jews at all. Anti-Semitism was an important aspect, but the most important aspect, you can see it in Mein Kampf, you can see it in all the German propaganda, is anti-communism. In this graphic, you have not Stalin, but Bolshevism. Besides, it was Bolshevism that was feared up until the end of the Second World War. Stalinism was born until 1944, at the end of the war. There is death, bombs, the burning of villages and homes, people are being hanged, so the 30 million deaths that you know of, supposedly from Stalin, there's an interesting thing to say about these 30 million deaths. During a blatant anti-communist campaign a few years ago, Brzezinski wrote a large, well-known anti-communist book. Inside, he says that now we can be totally certain that Stalin killed 30 million people in the Soviet Union. What's interesting is to see where this number of 30 million deaths emerged from and how it was used. Few people know about this. The 30 million deaths from Stalin are found in Mein Kampf. It's the Bible of Nazism that was written by Hitler in prison from 1925 to 1926. Inside, he talks about 30 million people barbarically killed by Bolshevism. Well, in 1925, Stalin still had not done anything particularly significant. The serious event that occurred in the Soviet Union during this time was the Civil War, and we know that in the Civil War there were 8 to 9 million deaths due to foreign interventions. But the 30 million deaths horrifyingly massacred by Bolshevism all started with Mein Kampf, and has not stopped even in 1989, with the great anti-communist campaign of Brzezinski still going on about the 30 million. 
Thus, how people are conditioned against socialism, communism, and revolution is expressed very well through this example, where the Nazis were the front line of all the bourgeois and opportunist forces. I want to add that when we look at the history of this century, we see that in all the countries in the world, all the imperialists, bourgeoisie, and fascists have always been relentless towards Stalin. It's a rather interesting phenomenon to see, even more so for the people who are starting to campaign for revolution. It's an extremely interesting point upon which we must reflect. How is it that all the reactionaries, all the worst, are before everything relentless towards Stalin? The point is that it's not really about Stalin, it's about Marxism-Leninism and the revolutions that were incarnated during Stalin's final ten years in power. Now a graphic depicting the anti-fascist war. Again, Stalin, who directs the terrorists in Belgium and in France. You have terrorists here with balaclavas, members of the resistance. They're being manipulated by Stalin, and to be more precise, by Judeo-Bolshevism, because you have the Jew on duty. It's Stalin who embodies the worst aspects of Judaism, and you have the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism in which Stalin is the master. I want to underline another point here. The bourgeoisie leads war by different means against the working class and against the countries of the third world. Well, since the Nazis, the bourgeoisie's doctrine of war, which has been taken up by all the bourgeoisies, has become rather complex and rather sophisticated. In all the textbooks you can read that political and psychological warfare are important components of war, and that armed warfare brews during all periods of peace through political warfare and psychological warfare. Well, the war that the bourgeoisie prepares is essentially war against the working class. The bourgeoisie leads this war by more or less peaceful methods, by the police, inspections, espionage, and the expulsion of revolutionaries. But psychologically and politically, it prepares militarized warfare. When you think about it, they have millions and millions of specialists who do only this, prepare psychological warfare and political warfare. But what is it that they care about? Well, they care about making anti-Stalinist propaganda. In other words, anti-communist propaganda. This is the goal of all the propaganda, of all political and psychological warfare. And this was already the case for the bourgeoisie during the time of Hitler. Because Hitler, when you see the occupation, mobilized mainly on two themes. One, the danger of Bolshevism, and two, terrorism. The Belgian partisans in the press under occupation were seen as the terrorists. The two mechanisms of political and psychological warfare from the Nazis are still here today. People are conditioned against Stalinism and against terrorism. The final example is the assassination of Chris Hani, the leader of the South African Communist Party. He was a man with consistently anti-imperialist positions, more or less consistent, unlike Mandela, who is an accomplished opportunist. So when Chris Hani was assassinated, this was accompanied by a campaign against him, the vicious Stalinist, and the head of the terrorists because he was the leader of the army. So this cartoon was under Hitler, but it remains today in all anti-revolutionary campaigns throughout the world. In this introduction, I want to underline a final point, what anti-Stalinism really signifies, in other words, its class character. Let's put aside all the chatter, all these words from the left that are used to further anti-Stalinism. When we see the true class character, I think we can see it the most clearly in what has happened in the Soviet Union over the past five years. As we know, Stalin has been dead for many decades now. Then Khrushchev came and demolished all of his work. He destroyed all of Stalin's ideological and political positions. Brezhnev would continue, and Gorbachev finished off the job. For the past 35 years, they have been going on an anti-Stalin campaign, allegedly in the name of a return to Leninism. They were going to improve communism. When you see the propaganda in our country in 1989, on the television every evening, there was the anti-communist segment. Well, the anti-communist movement destroyed what was left of the memories of communism in the Soviet Union, and we saw all the opportunist currents unite, all the fundamentally anti-communist currents that united on the basis of anti-communism. You saw the Social Democrats, of course the revisionists, the sex of Trotskyists, environmentalists, everybody. And the most apparent manifestation of this was in the Belgian parliament, during the happenings in Romania. They voted on a motion to condemn communism and communist totalitarianism. This was a unanimous vote, and so a member of the Lambs Bloc Party, a Belgian far-right secessionist party, stood up to make a comment about the vote, and he said, I congratulate all members of parliament, but at the same time, I would like to direct your attention towards the fact that 30 years ago, we were the only ones to defend this position. For once, the fascist was right. Fascists in the domain of anti-communism and anti-Stalinism were the vanguard, and we can see in the anti-communist campaign, which liquidated everything that was left of socialism in the Soviet Union, that they rallied all the opportunists, bourgeois, and petty bourgeois forces. This didn't even last for two or three years before the true class character of all this demagogy that we had at the time became clear. Thus, we had the Trotskyists who said that 
with the overthrow of Stalinism, socialist democracy was going to develop. The Trotskyists here in Belgium said that in Czechoslovakia we witnessed an anti-bureaucratic revolution. This didn't even last two years, so even for a blind person, even for an imbecile, it's clear what their propaganda signified from the point of view of class. So over a couple of years, what has happened? In 1989, the bourgeoisie was saying that in the Soviet Union there was a crisis under Gorbachev because economic growth was only at 1%. 1% is an unbearable situation. It's a crisis. What was left was overthrown. Capitalism was introduced. In four years, production decreased by 50%. But now it's not a problem. We move forth on the route of reform, democracy, and the rights of man. So production falls and half of industrial production was destroyed. Two months ago on the BBC, I heard a program, and the Moscow correspondent was saying that it should be noted that all the businesses that are currently functioning are directed by the mafia. This is exactly what was said. The BBC is the vanguard of anti-communist propaganda, and they were like this during the entire period before the overthrow. Today in the ex-Soviet Union, 80% of the population is below the poverty line, according to the numbers from Yeltsin himself. It's almost impossible for people to have children. The Soviet Union is the only industrialized country in the world where the population is dropping, where there are more deaths than births. And thus we have civil wars a little bit everywhere, such as Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Tajikistan, and there are attacks and massacres from the mafia in all the major cities. At least 60,000 people have already died. Therefore, it's a ferocious mafia-infested dictatorship of the new bourgeoisie that is absolutely barbaric. The class meaning behind the words, the class reality, the class interests of the anti-Stalinist campaign are clear now, for all those who want to see. Of course, there will always be people who have a vested interest in not seeing it. This is also an aspect of class struggle. Now, for the second section, I want to discuss the historical merits of Stalin. I want to underline the points that, according to me, clearly indicate that Stalin is the political figure who had the greatest influence on the events throughout the course of history of this century, and that the fulfillment in the domain of socialist construction and the anti-imperialist struggle under Stalin are unrivaled in this century. It was, of course, Lenin who contributed the theoretical, political, and ideological basis for the construction of socialism in the Soviet Union. But the realization in the Soviet Union and in the entire world of socialism and of a socialist and anti-imperialist movement was done by Stalin. I want to approach the matter based on 10 points. First of all, I would like to emphasize Stalin's role in the Civil War, essentially 1919 to 1920, which was the final deciding factor for the proletarian dictatorship's victory in the Soviet Union. To start with, I want to recall that among the leaders of the Bolshevik Party, Stalin was one of the rare ones who stayed for the whole time in Russia and who always led combat among the population, whether in secrecy or in prison. The majority of the leaders had to flee abroad, many of which, starting from 1903 and with few interruptions in 1905, remained abroad. Therefore, of the organizers who had the most influence and impact for the party in the country, Stalin had the greatest. During the First World War, he was arrested and sent to Siberia. This was the fifth time that he was arrested. We know that the First World War was an inter-imperialist war, that is to say all sides were fighting for the redivision of the world, and they were fighting to gain more colonies. This war was unjust on both sides, and in this war the people that suffered the most were the Russian people. They had 2.5 million deaths. They were a people who were already putting up with the weight of Tsarism, which was the most reactionary and cruel regime in Europe, and now add to that the destruction of the war and 2.5 million deaths. That's what resulted in Tsarism which had at the same time become rather fragile, to become overthrown in February, but the bourgeoisie and the social democrats who took power after February continued the war and continued to send ordinary people to get massacred. This is what gave birth to the October Revolution, which after all cost very little human life. The October Revolution itself was not very bloody. Tough, the matter became bloody when all the Tsarists, all the bourgeois, and all the social democrats, the Socialist Party, joined forces and sent Kerensky to London to plead for the English to intervene, which they of course willingly did. So there wasn't the English army and of course the Germans came first before the end of the war. Once the Germans were defeated, it was the English that rushed onto the Soviet Union. It was the French, the Czech, the Japanese, the Americans, the Polish, in total eight forces united to try to destroy the nascent Soviet Union. The Bolsheviks organized the October Revolution with a team of 33,000 members. This was a clandestine party made up of a few tens of thousands. If the Bolsheviks, their line and their politics, didn't have the support of the peasant masses, the tiny party would have been swept away. If this tiny party knew how to win not only against the Tsarists and the bourgeoisie, but against all the united imperialists, it is due to the fact that its politics corresponded to the interests of the workers, and also the peasant masses. All this was decided in the Civil War. 
where the peasants who had no training, who knew neither how to read nor how to write, who had never been touched by socialist ideas, in practice saw who wanted to give them land. There were regions where the peasants changed sides five times. At times, siding with the Bolsheviks to gain land, then after an anti-communist campaign, they shifted to the other side. There really were regions where these peasants switched sides five times. But at the end of the day, the peasant masses across the country made their choice because only the Bolshevik party defended the interests of the peasants and the workers. Thus, this civil war was the decisive factor for the construction of socialism. And in all this, I want to point out the important role that was played by Stalin. Trotsky came to the party only in 1917, so the man never belonged to the Bolshevik party. Due to the demonstrated failure of all the opportunist factions, including the Mensheviks, the only thing left to do was to join up with the Bolsheviks, which he did in 1917. Indeed, he had great talents as an organizer, as he organized the army at the central level. But the person who was sent by Lenin on all the fronts where there were catastrophic situations was Stalin. Stalin went from one front to another, where decisive military maneuvers were carried out. It was also in this war that Stalin was the only Bolshevik leader to acquire military experience on the ground and in battle, which would go on to be extremely important in the proceedings of the Second World War. The second point that I want to highlight is that after the victory in the Civil War, it was Stalin who defended the Leninist theory of the possibility to construct socialism in the Soviet Union, in a single country if necessary. Thus, the Bolsheviks, Lenin and Stalin, were always internationalists and considered as their ultimate goal a global revolution of the working class. Of course, they hoped that the First World War would ignite worker insurrections everywhere, in Germany, in France, in Belgium. Only the short story was that the ill-prepared worker insurrection in Germany, led by Liebknecht and Luxembourg, was bloodily crushed. In France and in Belgium, no real insurrections took place. The bourgeoisie of France, England, etc. tried to beat down socialism in the Soviet Union and failed. They had to leave because there still was revolutionary fervor bubbling up in their own countries. So in 1920 or 1921, the reality is that the party of the dictatorship of the proletariat rose to power in the Soviet Union by itself, and everywhere else the great wave of revolution had already come to an end. There would be more struggles to be had, but it was directly after the First World War when things were the hardest. What then had to be done? It was hoped that Germany and France would have revolutions because, obviously, if a modern and developed country takes the path of socialism, it is much easier for a backwards country like Russia to walk hand-in-hand hand with such a country. This did not happen. So, at this point, what needed to be done? It was under these circumstances that a five-year-long debate in the Soviet Union took place between Stalin, Bukharin, Kamenev, all the others, and Trotsky. Trotsky defended the theory that he already had in 1905, that it's impossible to construct socialism in only one country, and that inevitably this revolution would be destined for failure and collapse. Thus, the only thing that could be done, as he said, was to carry the revolution over to Europe. On one side, this was adventurism, and on the other side, it was pessimism, defeatism, and capitulationism. The workers and peasants who suffered and heroically took action to dismantle czarism and the bourgeoisie were essentially being told, listen, we're alone, so my dear friends, it's too bad, but it will have to be another time because this is not it. The Bolshevik party agreed to discuss these ideas for four to five years, so it took a lot of energy and paralyzed much of their key forces. In this debate, it was essentially Stalin who expressed confidence in the Bolshevik party, confidence in the working class, confidence also in Leninism as a doctrine of the revolution, as a doctrine of the construction of socialism, and as a doctrine that expressed, and this is what Lenin did during the final two years of his life, the certainty the certainty that in the specific world context it was possible. Everything was there that was necessary to construct socialism in the Soviet Union. It was Stalin that defended these ideas, which corresponded also to the needs of the workers and the peasants, and he achieved them in practice. The third point that I want to stress is that it was Stalin who built up the Bolshevik party as a party of the masses. The ideology, political line, and conception of the party were the links that Lenin created in secrecy and in the struggles against Tsarism. But in 1917, at the time of the revolution, the Bolsheviks only had 33,000 members, no more. During the Civil War, there were about 600,000 who joined, and afterwards Lenin launched the first purge. The first purge, which was the largest, was organized by Lenin in 1921. He dismissed 50% of the members because many who joined the Bolshevik party just wanted land, mostly younger peasants. But on the questions concerning knowledge of communism, of Marxism, or even elementary things, there was no understanding, so it was necessary to sort these people out. The Bolsheviks decreased to 300,000 members when socialist construction began in 1921. About 10 years later, in 1931 or 1932, they had 2.5 million members. In the battles to build up the country, industrialize, collectivize, and have a cultural revolution, the young forces of the working class and peasants were absorbed into the party, 2.5 million. 
What I'm trying to get at is that when we observe the political struggles, it was essentially Stalin who defended the ideas and politics of Lenin, and who formed the party based on these ideas. He created a mass party capable of encouraging all of the working class and peasantry to partake in a task that almost everybody deemed impossible to achieve. It was not only the Trotskyists who said that it was impossible, here in the West it was obvious to everybody that this madness could not last. But thanks to Stalin's organizational capacity and his political inspiration and party, the Soviet Union equipped itself with a political party capable of directing this extremely complicated process. It was also Stalin who instilled in the young peasants and workers the spirit of sacrifice and heroism in their work, and who constructed a party that not only had a profound impact on the Soviet Union, but also deeply affected the world situation. The fourth point that I want to point out is that contrary to what a lot of bourgeois propaganda suggests, Stalin was a great theoretician. It is important to point out his theoretical works. First off, he effectively and precisely defended the fundamentals of Lenin's work against all the opportunist tendencies that existed, which were numerous in the party. Secondly, in the construction of the Soviet Union, he applied the very Leninist ideas which he defended. He offered not only a theoretical defense, but also an application and development in practice. What can be noted from the theoretical work of Lenin is that, contrary to Stalin, Lenin frequently wrote for intellectual groups who directed the popular and revolutionary movement. This makes his works at times very difficult to understand because they can be very sophisticated. Stalin was in a different situation. He was leading the country, building up a country of the masses, and he was tasked with educating millions of humble workers and peasants who only know how to read and write. Consequently, his works have a very noticeable pedagogical quality. You can see for yourselves. Many workers in our country will find Stalin's text easier to understand. It's for this reason that we have texts such as the Foundations of Leninism, his course on Leninism that he delivered at it's very short, but absolutely brilliant, because you have almost the entirety of Lenin's works, from which he takes out the essential elements and makes them understandable for a worker. You can still study it these days with workers. The second book that had a decisive importance for the construction of the Bolshevik Party in the Soviet Union, but also for communists throughout the world, it was studied during the resistance against the fascists. It was studied in Vietnam, China, Yugoslavia, Albania, Belgium, France, is the history of the all-Union Communist Party, Bolsheviks which was written under the direction of Stalin in 1938. It's also a model of clarity and outlines the essential discussions that took place between Lenin and the opportunists very well. I think that together, these two works, along with The Communist Manifesto and The State and Revolution by Lenin, are the four books that are within the grasp of an average worker and can and must constitute the foundation of communist awareness even nowadays. The fifth point that I want to expand on is that Stalin achieved the task deemed impossible, the industrialization of the Soviet Union. In 1921, the Soviet Union came out of a world war and a civil war, seven years of uninterrupted war that ravaged almost the entire country. Almost everything was destroyed, almost no factories were left standing, and this was already a backwards country before the war. Thus, Stalin set out to straighten out the economy, commencing the first five-year plan in the world in 1928. Thanks to the idea of a planned economy, the heroism in the work, and the spirit of sacrifice on the part of the working class. Such were the two essential forces through which the miracle of industrialization was accomplished, the planned economy and the revolutionary spirit, the working class's heroic spirit in its work. When the five-year plan first began in 1928, the Soviet Union set aside 14% of its national income for accumulation. From the entire national income, 14% was essentially used to create new businesses, railroads, etc., the first five-year plan began with one certainty. If the Soviet Union did not, in a period of 10 to 15 years, carry out the complete industrialization of the country, which would render the country capable of leading the economic struggle against the most advanced imperialist countries, if there were not a way by which to realize this miracle, the country would have been crushed. It was in this spirit that the workers and peasants were brought up. In the war which they led from 1920 to 1921 against the interventionists, they ceased in a forced manner, but would return as soon as the occasion presented itself. There were crises between the Soviet Union and England in 1927. One must understand that the Japanese began to attack China and were at the Soviet border in 1931. This idea that time was very scarce existed from the beginning of the first five-year plan. In this case, 44% of the national income was set aside for accumulation. The Soviet Union and Stalin would say to the workers that it was necessary to make sacrifices, that this was the only option if they wanted to survive and wanted a material foundation by which living and housing conditions for the workers and peasants could improve later on. The effort that was necessary to create their party and industry, which was spearheaded by the workers, this effort was undertaken in a conscious fashion and in a giant education and training campaign. 
The bourgeoisie and all the opportunists who go on all day about how the workers suffered, how Stalin imposed intolerable working conditions, how this was not the dictatorship of the proletariat because the workers suffered, etc. All the counter-revolutionaries seem terribly concerned about the fate of the workers in this case here. The Bolsheviks knew very well that they could not exploit any colonies. They could not base themselves on the capital of other imperialist countries. These are the two sources consulted in the development of all the capitalist countries. For those which had reached the stage of a developed capitalist country, there was always the ferocious exploitation of colonies and the borrowing of capital from another imperialist power. This route was cut off, and if the Soviet Union in a very short period of time wanted to accomplish its industrialization, it was necessary for the workers and peasants to make sacrifices. Themselves, there was nobody else. They did it, and knew exactly why. The bourgeoisie will speak of the terrible fate of the working class. It's interesting to do a comparison with what's currently transpiring in the Soviet Union. From 1990 to 1994, the salaries of the Soviet Union fell by 60%, so the workers made enormous sacrifices. We're not speaking about layoffs, there were about 20 million according to the estimates. In the Soviet Union, the workers made sacrifices, but they were sacrifices to create their own independent state and their industry. The sacrifices that the imperialist bourgeoisie currently imposes upon the Soviet workers had the consequence of making production output drop by 50%. The country is not being built up, it's being destroyed. The country is not becoming independent, it's becoming dependent on American and German imperialism because it's them who bought up the best sectors of the economy for basically nothing. But right now, the bourgeoisie isn't worried about the fate of the workers as it was under Stalin. So two numbers to get an idea of what we're talking about in terms of industrialization. In 1920, Lenin drafted the plan for the electrification of the country. One must be familiar with Lenin's formula, that socialism is Soviet power plus electrification. In other words, modernized means of production. Thus, he made an electrification plan that would last 15 years, and in 1935, the plan was drafted in 1920, he hoped to have 1.75 million kilowatts worth of power. This was the long-term plan. In 1935, Stalin surpassed this goal by 230%. The plan that was deemed impossible to fulfill by the West was accomplished more than two times over by 230%. The other statistic that expresses the extraordinary efforts by the workers and also the extraordinary success in the economic area of socialism under Stalin. Annual industrial production between 1930 and 1940 increased on average by 16.5%. This was the greatest statistic, the one that incidentally had never been achieved before in the world. And this was a situation where imperialism was in crisis. Production fell in Germany during the 1929 crisis, which lasted until 1932, from which the country came out preparing for war. There you have it, industrialization. We will come back to this topic when we discuss the war. The sixth point that I would like to indicate as an historical merit of Stalin is the accomplishment of collectivized agriculture, which was probably the most difficult task. Concerning the peasantry, for the majority of us, when we say peasant, this no longer means anything because there are no more peasants in Belgium, and hence it is difficult for us to imagine what the Soviet Union was like in 1920-1925. It was a country that, as far as everything concerning the technical and material conditions of the countryside, was living as Belgium or France did during the 1500s. Thus, the techniques were at the level of those used by our peasants under Spanish rule. Illiteracy was widespread, there reigned an ideology of the Middle Ages, and in the villages, witches were still being burned. In other words, we're talking about beliefs that were the most mind-numbing possible, and it was with these peasant masses that the building of socialism had to be undertaken. The socialist revolution gave land to the peasants. Every peasant received an equal part of the land, but they still engaged in small-scale production. There were no other options. It was called the New Economic Policy. It called for more or less state-controlled free commerce, so this meant that some people would lose everything and others would get rich. There were some people who had many sick people in their homes and had to borrow money. There were some people that had a tiny labor force and others that had a plentiful labor force. In short, in 1927, 7% of the peasantry once again no longer had anything, who were landless peasants. 35% of the peasants were poor, in other words, peasants that had neither horses nor plows ones that barely survived and had to rent themselves out to the rich peasants. 50 to 52% of the peasantry were middle peasants, meaning people who were just getting by. And finally, you have once again rich peasants making up the top 7% of the peasantry, who could hire two to three workers, who had horses, who could enlarge their land. So you have this spontaneous polarization, as is customary in a free market economy, a polarization between the rich and the poor, between proletarians and exploiters. The Soviet Union wanted to industrialize, as evidenced by the drafting of the first five-year plan at this time. 
But if you want to industrialize and have millions of workers migrate to the cities to do so, you also have to feed them. Thus, a higher agricultural productivity was necessary. How could this be done? Machinery and fertilizer had to be introduced, so modernized means of production. Who was going to introduce them? The spontaneous tendency was that the rich 7% of peasants bought a tractor, and this was already happening. A few hundred became rich enough to buy a tractor. The process continued to accelerate, the rich accumulating capital very quickly, and the peasant masses losing everything. And if agriculture, this ocean in which the villages were immersed, was held by an agricultural bourgeoisie, it is clear that socialism would not last in Russia. With this encirclement by this mass of reactionaries who directed the peasantry, the rich peasants would eventually overthrow Soviet power in the villages. Therefore, there was only one possible alternative route to introduce a modernization of agriculture, which was to steer the poor and middle peasants towards uniting and supply them modern technical methods such as tractors. All this constituted the process of collectivization and the creation of kolkhozes. This party encouraged this process, but in 1927, only about 4% of peasants were part of the kolkhozes, collective farms, and sovkhozes, state farms. It was a process that started up slowly because the peasant consciousness was not yet very developed. Well, around 1929, the kolkhozes produced about 7% of what the kulaks, rich peasants, produced. So, there started to be enough collective production to have the power to begin the elimination of the Kulak's property and capitalist exploitation, and the party decided to follow this route, to first limit and then to eliminate the rich peasants. It was this offensive on the part of collectivization that really started in 1929. In general, in our country, it is said that collectivization was forcefully implemented by Stalin the dictator, and that peasants didn't want it. Now, with what would poor Stalin have imposed his collectivization? In the countryside, the Bolshevik party had almost no power. There were 350,000 party members for a population of 120 million peasants. So supervision on the part of the communists in the countryside was very, very restricted. There were three communists for every million peasants. But moreover, in the countryside, almost everybody who knew how to read and write could easily join the party because everything was lacking. Someone who had been to school could simply recite a couple Marxist phrases and they would be admitted. It was very easy. Thus, there were many kulaks, old police officers, old functionaries from the Tsarist regime who in two or three motions transformed themselves into Bolsheviks. Not only was the party weak from a numerical standpoint, but also from an ideological point of view. The party sent tens of thousands and even several hundreds of thousands of workers, city dwellers, and the young members of the Red Army that had a communist upbringing to the countryside so as to help stimulate the movement for collectivization. It was they who supervised especially the poor and middle peasants so that the Kolkhozian movement could really get going. And if the peasant masses were not aware of what was at stake, never would have the Bolshevik party accomplished collectivization. What I want to state is that the poor and middle peasant masses saw very well how things were evolving, so they knew that they were in the process of falling back on the dictatorship of the rural bourgeoisie. If they wanted to grow, if they wanted to be free, if they wanted to be the leaders of the country, they had to fight and struggle as a united force. And the class struggles of the Russian countryside that lasted for centuries and centuries where each time there were insurrections and peasant revolts from the peasantry being pushed to its limits, this tradition was ingrained in people's heads. Every time that they fought, they got massacred. This time, this secular struggle began to undergo another cycle, but now the poor and middle peasants had the army on their side. The state was on their side. The party was on their side. It was essentially the power of the masses that allowed the Bolsheviks and socialism to defeat the Kulaks as a class, which still relied on the retrograde, reactionary, orthodox, and clerical traditions that existed in the countryside. Once mobilization started to get going and the Kulaks knew that collectivization was going to occur, this provoked a true civil war. The Kulaks knew that this was the final struggle, so they did everything in their power to completely wreck the system. They led a war of extermination first on horses, on cattle, and on sheep. The land was worked on with horses and cattle, which were essentially in the hands of the rich and middle peasants. These rich peasants told the middle ones that everything was going to be taken away from them, their animals and their wives. Since a reactionary ideology was still rooted in the peasants' minds, quite a few peasants believed these claims. So there was a monstrous slaughtering of horses, cattle, and the rest of the livestock. Half of all horses were slaughtered. This is to say that half of the labor force to work on the land was destroyed. The Kulaks wanted everything to be destroyed because then the Bolsheviks would crumble. This was their calculation. It was a fierce struggle. 
In light of this, the Bolshevik Party was in a position to mobilize the poor and middle masses to, in an open and sometimes ferocious struggle, get rid of the kulaks. This is what was called dekulakization. In general, horrors are described that the kulaks got exterminated in the same manner as the Jews. This is the propaganda that the Nazis started after their defeat, which the CIA and the Americans reused. When we look at dekulakization, it started in a spontaneous fashion with the peasants who went after the kulaks. Very quickly, the party established an order that detailed categories of kulaks, specifying that only the kulaks that partook in open counter-revolutionary action would be subject to having all their land and possessions taken away and would be sent to camps. This group numbered 63,000 individuals. The second group was made up of 150,000 families, the old property holders and rich peasants that were politically active but not openly counter-revolutionary. And the vast majority of kulaks, between 400,000 and 800,000, would not lose all their land nor all their possessions, and they would be given land within their district, in other words, they were not deported to remote regions. This was a gigantic struggle, but in two or three years, the land question and the agrarian problem were settled for good. When we see the history, we can discuss the statistics. Conquest, who is an ex-agent of the British Secret Service and who is now the biggest anti-communist specialist in the world, the most well-known academic, which for that matter is cited by all the bourgeois, petty bourgeois, Trotskyist, and other organizations, something that comes to mind, in 1989, during an obviously anti-communist campaign, a Trotskyist organization put together a special on the Soviet Union, and the presenter got to a section titled, What Should One Read to Understand the Nature of Stalinism? Two authors were cited, Conquest and Solzhenitsyn. Two months later, the Vlam's Block Party, in its monthly paper, said in a small article that the nature of communism is clear to anybody in the world as seen through the works of Conquest and Solzhenitsyn. Conquest claimed that there were 3 million deaths during dekulakization. In the meantime, the official statistics concerning those who were expropriated and sent to Siberia were published down to the last man because everybody was recorded. So now, there's a French publication that examined the works of Soviet historians under Yeltsin. We can calculate that during all the disruption and change during the two to three years of dekulakization, there were in between 200,000 and at most 300,000 deaths. Mind you, this is taking into account open struggle, affected families, and the extremely deplorable hygienic conditions in the entire country. It's important to recognize the veritably intense nature of collectivization. It was an open and ferocious class struggle, and it decided the outcome of the agrarian question, which had been wrestled with for centuries, which cost millions of deaths and produced no results despite all the revolts. This struggle produced a totally new system of agriculture that allowed the Soviet Union to industrialize and defeat its people when faced with fascism in the midst of war. The Soviet Union was capable of modernizing its agriculture in less than eight years. In 1929, in other words, the moment when collectivization began in the Soviet Union, there were 18,000 tractors. In 1941, when the war started, there were 685,000 of them. This means a net total production of 660,000 tractors. No other country has industrialized and modernized agriculture at such a pace. This fed the cities and created a foundation to feed the population against the fascists. The seventh accomplishment of Stalin that I want to briefly highlight is the Cultural Revolution. There was industrialization and collectivization, but these went hand in hand with the Cultural Revolution. I'm telling you, it was a country of illiteracy, so we're talking about a country that was pulled from the Middle Ages into the modern world. Technicians, intellectuals, techniques, machines, and arms had to be produced in order to be able to confront the most advanced power in Europe, Hitlerian Germany. One must understand that in 1929, there were no roads in the countryside, no railroads, no telephone lines. Quite literally, the modern age was swiftly implemented throughout the entire countryside, which was an enormous effort. Almost the entirety of the peasantry was illiterate. For the first time, libraries were disseminated all over the countryside. At the start of the construction, there were 46 million books in the libraries. At the beginning of the war, there were 527 million of them. So about 500 million books were produced during this period. At the beginning of construction, there were 110,000 students in the universities. At the beginning of the war, the university students numbered 810,000. So a growth from 110,000 to 810,000, a multiplication of about seven times. Now for a couple statistics to illustrate the gigantic effort that was undertaken in all domains of education, culture, and also the arts. The guy that I cited in my introduction, Zinoviev, speaks of collectivization and the cultural revolution in a book that he wrote against communism, in which he lays out everything that he has to say against communism, but eventually he speaks of his village. 
As a student, he returned home to his village and notes that, during my return to the village, and later on as well, I would often ask my mother and the other Kokosians if they would have accepted resuming individual exploitation in the event that this possibility was offered to them. Now, everybody waits for a unanimous yes, according to what we are told about collectivization. If they would have accepted resuming individual exploitation in the event that this possibility was offered to them, everybody responded to me with an unequivocal refusal. And later on, he states, the village school was made up of only seven classes, but it served as a gateway to the technical schools in the region that produced veterinarians, agronomists, mechanics, tractor operators, and bookkeepers. Further on, there was a secondary school. All these establishments and professions were the elements of an unprecedented cultural revolution. Collectivization had directly contributed to this drastic change. The structure of the rural population came closer to that of urban society. All this while saying, I was a witness of this evolution beginning from my childhood. This extremely rapid transformation of rural society was greeted with colossal support on the part of the broad masses of the population. Keep in mind that this is an anti-communist who talked about all this in a book that he published in Germany at the end of the 1980s. The eighth point that I want to address is the organization of the purges, which created the conditions for victory during the anti-fascist war. The war with fascism was in the air. Everybody knew that the fascists would come ever since the mid-1930s. Stalin read Mein Kampf very carefully, and he knew that for the Germans, Lebensraum, literally living space, Nazi plan for settler colonialism, was in the east, and that it was certain that the war would come. So Stalin also knew that it was a life or death struggle, that it would be the worst war that humanity had ever seen. As tension increased and this war came closer, we also saw all the anti-communist forces beginning to unite. This is what we saw occur in the Soviet Union in society and in the party. The opportunists and counter-revolutionaries infiltrated the party. The degenerate elements united against the Bolshevik direction. It was in this context that the purges from 1935 to 1937, 1938, took place and succeeded in the Soviet Union at eliminating the fifth column. In other words, the forces that the future Nazi occupation could rely on. To understand the purges, it's necessary to have certain essential matters and notions in our heads. First, we must remind ourselves that the Soviet Union was a feudal country during the Socialist Revolution. The Tsarist forces were still very influential, and so was Orthodox religion. The defeated bourgeoisie was still there. Social democracy, which backed up the bourgeoisie during the Civil War, was still there. The kulaks, which had been squashed, were still there. These forces created a political and ideological pressure on the structures of the state and the party. In any case, these were already educated forces before. So then, what did we see transpire in the party? I will briefly list four phenomena. Firstly, the influence of social democracy in the Bolshevik party had always been important. One must understand that between 1903 and 1912, the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks coexisted more or less within the same party. There were splits, people would come back, etc. So the reformist ideas of the Mensheviks were also introduced into the Bolshevik faction of the party. At the time of the October Revolution, there were two prominent members of the Bolshevik party who began to take the path of the Mensheviks, Zinoviev and Kamenev, who were traitors and told the bourgeois and Menshevik presses that Lenin and the other fanatics wanted to have a revolution in the 25th of October. These individuals were so opposed to the revolution that they decided it was useful to say in the Menshevik press that the fanatics were going to seize power. Ever since this time, a social democratic influence existed within the party. Another example, there's a guy named George Solomon, the Vice Minister of Commerce and Industry in 1917. This man was a Bolshevik since 1903, what we call an old Bolshevik. Well, in 1917 and 1918, he decided that Lenin was going too far and that his idea to create socialism in a backwards rural country was non-Marxist, that it was adventurism to want to eliminate the bourgeoisie. He also claimed that the bourgeoisie still had a progressive role to play. So it's with this idea that he was a party member and vice minister. In 1923, he defected to the West in Belgium, and he was on a mission when he came to the other side. It was here that he published his book, which he wrote right after his defection, and was published by the International Center of the Active Fight Against Communism. Inside, you have in great detail the explanation that the Soviet Union was currently living in slavery and terror, and that floods of human blood flowed every week. So you have the image of Stalinism, but we're still on Lenin. This man was an old Bolshevik, so you can read his work. It's very interesting. You'll see the influence of a social democratic ideology, even amongst the leaders of the Bolshevik party, and you see a guy that already in 1923 went over to the side of the worst reaction. The second point that I want to point out is that there were degenerate elements that became counter-revolutionary in the party. At this time, I want to talk about Trotsky, who was the most striking figure of this tendency. It was already said that he was never a Bolshevik all the way up until 1917. 
1917, he joined the party, and in fact, he kept all his anti-Leninist ideology that he had been developing since 1902-1903. Very quickly, he started a polemic saying that it was in fact he who saw the perspectives of the revolution most clearly, so he tried to replace Leninism with Trotskyism. He had almost no support in the party. There was a debate that lasted for about five years, and after all that time, he received only a couple percentage points worth of votes. Once he was expelled from the party, his degeneration was very quick. I will only mention a few key points that you must absolutely become familiar with in order to judge his character. All of this started already in 1934, so rather early. In 1934, he had a theory that is extremely interesting to contemplate. He says as follows, Hitler's victory was provoked by the criminal politics of the communist inner. Without Stalin, there would not have been a victory for Hitler. So it's communism and Stalin that are responsible for Hitler's rise to power. Trotsky's conclusion, to overthrow Hitler, we must... Think now of the Trotskyists you know who say that a large united front must be made with social democracy, etc. This is what's coming. To overthrow Hitler, we must do away with the Communist International. So the Communist International must be destroyed in order to be in a position to do away with Hitler. Two years later, the war on the horizon and it was 1936, so everyone was talking about the coming war. He says this here. The Stalinist bureaucracy is frightened by the prospect of war because it knows better than us that it will not survive the war as a regime. So this first idea, if war breaks out against the Nazis, in any case, Stalin and his gang, the Bolshevik party led by the Stalinist gang, will fall and they know it. The reasoning continues. Berlin, so the Nazis, knows to what degree Stalin's demoralization has led astray the army and the population. Stalin continues to undermine the moral power and resistance of the country. These careerists, with neither honor nor conscience, will betray the country during difficult periods. So, starting in 1936, he began making propaganda saying that the people were demoralized and Stalin was undermining moral power and resistance. That Stalin and his cronies will be traitors from the get-go. When you have in front of you a war against the fascists, apparently it was necessary to make this kind of propaganda, to say that in any case we're doomed. They will betray us. They will run away from the start. These people, Trotsky continues, what are his conclusions? He has two of them. So Stalin's gang must be destroyed, and there are two methods to do this. One, Stalin can be assassinated, or two, a mass insurrection that could be organized to overthrow the Bolshevik party. First, the assassinating Stalin. This is now 1938. Stalin is destroying the army and trampling on the country. Hate accumulates around him mercilessly, and a terrible vengeance hangs above his head. An assassination attempt. It's possible that this regime, which exterminated the country's best people, finally calls upon itself individual terror. It can be added that it would be contrary to the laws of history that the Stalinist gangsters in power do not make it so that they are met with vengeance of desperate terrorists. So Trotsky is saying that he's conspiring that work must be done in a conspiratorial manner in the Soviet Union. He's talking about an assassination attempt on Stalin, and that, according to the logic of history, it's possible that he will provoke individual terror against him. It would even be contrary to the laws of history if some people did not rise to assassinate Stalin. So this, what we call making propaganda, inciting individual assassination attempts, then there was the propaganda encouraging the overthrow of Bolshevik power in Stalin's party. This is what he says word for word. Only an insurrection of the Soviet proletariat against the foul tyranny of the new parasites can save what still remains of the October conquests. I would like to bring your attention to the words foul tyranny of the new parasites. I don't know if anybody here voluntarily reads the fascist press, but when you look at the language that these fascists use against communism, this is pretty much what it's like, the foul tyranny of new parasites. And in this book, it is literally stated that to save the country and to save what can still be saved from the socialist revolution, there first must be a proletarian insurrection to overthrow the party. The same thing is repeated in another place when he says, the fourth international will lead the Soviet masses towards insurrection. The workers, peasants, soldiers of the Red Army, and sailors of the Red Fleet will rise up against the new caste of oppressors and parasites. So he calls on the army, the navy, the workers, and the peasants to rise up. For those who engage in politics, this is what is known as being an agitator in service to the Nazis. The third fact which I want to speak of that was found in the party, so there were social democratic tendencies, degenerate and counter-revolutionary elements, is that there were enemies who con consciously infiltrated the party. Here you have, and I don't want to get hung up on this, but you have a text by Boris Bajanov. He was 19 years old when the revolution broke out. He wrote in 1930 that when he was 19 years old, he had no way of fighting against Bolshevism in an open fashion, and that the only way to fight it was to infiltrate it and destroy it from the inside. Within four years, the young Boris reached the 
political bureau of the Bolshevik party. He wasn't a party member, but he was Stalin's secretary, and as his secretary, he took notes from the political bureau. This tells you something about the situation at the time. But here is an anti-communist, a resolute anti-communist, who says that he will join the party in order to destroy it, who within four years made it into the political bureau. Another example from John Scott's book, an American who worked at Magnitogorsk. He portrays a scene where there is a manager of a factory in Magnitogorsk, and Scott discovers his past. And there's another ex-peasant from Ukraine, where the manager Chevchenko is also from, and says about the manager, I know this guy. During the Civil War, he was a policeman for the White Army. So this was a former Kulak, a former police officer who fought the Bolsheviks arms in hand, and also transformed him into a Bolshevik. And he was very dynamic. To transform themselves into Bolsheviks, all the counter-revolutionaries had a very clear path. They would leave the countryside and come to the factories and construction sites. In other words, they became workers, and after two years, they really were workers. And back then, being a worker was very highly regarded. As a cultivated and dynamic worker, he enrolled in the University of Red Directors. For the workers that could handle it, they were sent to special universities to become company managers. It was through this model that Chevchenko became a director of some socialist enterprises, and he, of course, became a party member. The third example is Tokiev's organization. Tokiev was a Red Army colonel, and he wrote a book when he defected to the West in 1948. At 22 years old, he was a member of a clandestine anti-communist organization operating in the party and the Red Army. So for those who say that even so, Stalin exaggerated and what he did was madness, they must read this book here. This was an anti-communist who defected to the West and he explains his struggle. He speaks of several dozens of senior officers in the Red Army whose number two in the political department, General Osapia, was the head of his subversive organization. He goes on about how his officers, generals, and colonels joined together, organized operations and schemes, planned attacks and insurrections. This constituted their work. During the purges, almost the entire organization was caught and most members were shot. They were shot along with soldiers associated with Tukhachevsky. Tukhachevsky was a former officer of the Tsarist army who became the head of the Red Army and was a very competent military man, but he became a bourgeois reactionary. Surrounding Tukhachevsky, many counter-revolutionary elements gathered together in the army. What's fantastic about Tokiev's book is that you have someone from the inside who defends what he has done, and he paints an extremely striking image of the activities of anti-communists in the army leadership. The leader of these anti-communists within the army and party leadership was a member of the Central Committee, a soldier that was a member of the Central Committee, which Tokiev calls Comrade X. Nobody has found out who it was. It's doable, but it, that takes time. All these people were linked to, and this is the fourth category, the opportunists in the party who were essentially embodied by Bukharin. Bukharin was criticized for his social democratic deviation since 1928, but even in spite of this, Stalin left him in the party leadership. It is said that Stalin, as soon as there was somebody who said things that strayed from the party, would show them out the door and have them shot. This is sheer foolishness. Bukharin made monumental political errors, but nonetheless remained in party leadership. He was criticized in 1928-1929 at the beginning of the 1930s, and he was not stopped until it was proven that Bukharin, a high-ranking party member, maintained links with the military conspirators. This also is explained in Tokiev's book. Their link as anti-communist conspirators with the opportunist factions of the party being Yanukids, Bukharin, and many others, this coalition of four forces directly menaced the revolutionary nature of the party, and during a serious crisis, these four forces could have turned around the direction of the party. It's necessary to understand as well that the Germans were also keeping busy. The Nazis infiltrated their people and recruiter agents in Belgium and France by hundreds and thousands. When they came here, right away we saw that they were everywhere at all levels. So they prepared their aggression very well. Well, Hitler was saying since 1925 that the number one objective was the Soviet Union in Mein Kampf. To summarize, it can be said that the effort to infiltrate and recruit in the Soviet Union was much more considerable than what occurred in any other country. The fifth column and the people who were linked to the fifth column were more important in the Soviet Union than in our country. Well, during the purges, it was this fifth column that was exterminated, after which it no longer existed in the Soviet Union. It's for this reason that the Soviet Union, in a situation that was strained to the extreme, was barely able to hold out. Nowadays, we think that it was obvious that the Soviet Union would resist and win the war, but it was not so obvious. There were extremely dramatic moments, and therefore, if the purges never occurred, if part of the fifth column remained, it would not be a stretch to say that the Soviet Union might have fallen. 
The ninth point I would like to quickly skim over is the decisive contribution Stalin had during the anti-fascist war and in the victory against fascism. Without Stalin and the Soviet Union, fascism would have been victorious throughout the entire world. There was no other power that could have been in a place to destroy it. Stalin's essential input during the anti-fascist war can be located at least four levels. I will simply just touch on them. First off, economic preparation. If the Soviet Union didn't have modern industry, which was realized at a forced pace, it would not have known how to defend itself. Zhukov wrote some memoirs, and they are worth being studied because Zhukov was not a proponent of Stalin. It was Zhukov who aided in Khrushchev's coup d'etat. So when he wrote his memoirs during the 1970s, they constituted a source that cannot be suspicious of being favorably biased towards Stalin. He was the most important of the anti-Stalinists in the army, and he was the principal ally of Khrushchev. That being said, in these memoirs, he basically says that it must be admitted that Stalin did everything that was humanly possible to construct the economic foundations which have made it possible for us to build more than 100,000 modern tanks and more than 130,000 modern fighter planes. One must also be aware of the fact that during the three or four years before the war, starting from 1938, industry in general had a growth rate of 13%, while military industry had a 44% growth rate. Forced industrialization continued, but things were really being pushed to their limits in the military area. So all those that who say that Stalin didn't see the Germans coming, that he trusted Hitler, are just spewing propaganda from people on the other side. Secondly, Stalin prepared for the war and the victory against the fascists in the field of diplomacy. When Hitler rose to power, Stalin was the only one to draw conclusions, and he proposed an anti-fascist pact with France and Czechoslovakia. France and Czechoslovakia entered into agreements in 1935, and in 1938, Hitler took Austria. In light of this, France, England, Fascist Italy, and Hitler joined together at Munich, left out the Soviet Union, and in the end decided to let Czechoslovakia perish. So Hitler was allowed to take Czechoslovakia and was pushed in an eastward direction. France had an agreement with Stalin and the Soviet Union, so Munich marked a shift on the part of France from an initial anti-fascist pact with the Soviet Union to uniting with Hitler to push him towards the east. These kinds of politics continued as the English and the French believed that they could direct German expansionism toward the Soviet Union. But Stalin was no fool. In 1939, he negotiated with the French and the English, knowing very well what they had in mind. This was an extremely clear-headed and rational man. He negotiated up until the last minute so that there would be a conclusive agreement that if war broke out with Germany, all parties would enter into war because he wanted a guarantee that if Hitler went to war with the Soviet Union, that the others would come to help. So Stalin wanted a genuine pact, but the French and the English refused. It was already known by this time that Hitler would start the war in the coming months, but it was not known if he was going to start in the East or the West. It was at this time that Stalin made the pact between Germany and the Soviet Union, and this pact had a decisive influence for the rest of the war. First of all, the pact shattered the scheming between all the imperialists, the fascists, the English, and the French, to destroy Bolshevism before everything. Secondly, the pact gave about a year and a half's worth of time to prepare the Soviet Union's military and political strength at a maximum intensity. Thirdly, the pact gave way to the possibility of having a true anti-fascist front, because before, the English and the French refused. But since Hitler started the war in the West, and because the English and the French were already officially at war with the Germans, when the Germans attacked the Soviet Union, thus arose the possibility of having an anti-fascist front. And fourthly, what is not frequently known, the pact with the Germans was also made with the Japanese, and it lasted until the end of the war. This is extremely important because there was a war between the Soviet Union and the Japanese in 1939, but with the Germano-Soviet pact, there was also one made with the Japanese, and from that point on, they stayed out of the war with the Soviet Union. If all of Japan's military strength was unleashed on Siberia, the Soviet Union's predicament would have been even more difficult. After the pact, Hitler, the English, and the French were officially at war, but not one bullet was shot. This was known as the Phony War. They were technically at war, but everybody just stood around. September, October, November, December, nobody did anything. In December, the Soviet Union, after failed negotiations with Finland, attacked Finland because the Soviets knew very well that Finland and Hitler had an agreement stating that as soon as war was to break out with the Soviet Union, they would fight together. Well, the Finns were just two kilometers away from Leningrad, so the negotiations stipulated that the Soviet Union would temporarily occupy a part of the territory before Leningrad in order to be capable of defending it, and in exchange, the Finns would receive a territory that was five times larger. But as their plan was not to help out the Soviet Union in a war against the fascists, they refused. In this case, the Soviet Union sorted out the issue with the weapons because they knew that the war was sure to come and that Leningrad was undefensible. So the Soviets pushed back against the Finnish army, and only then did the French and English mobilize their forces against the Soviet Union. 
Weygand, French military commander, was sent to Turkey, and he organized the bombardment of the oil fields at Baku. There was a French general who wrote a book at the beginning of 1940 saying that if they bombed the Baku oil fields, they would give the Soviet Union two months before its total surrender before France. They sent 700 fighter planes, 1,500 cannons, the French sent 50,000 troops, the English sent 100,000, who were mobilized and ready to set off to help the Finns against the Reds. The war ended in March, and it must be known that although the English and the French were officially at war with the Germans, the only war they ever tried to wage was that against the Reds, and thus, the possibility of a new pact between England, France, and Hitler against the Reds was still a possibility at the beginning of 1940. Stalin's third merit concerning the military was that he victoriously led the resistance and the counteroffensive against the fascists. In general, the propaganda in our country tells us that he didn't prepare the country well, that he didn't see the day coming, or from the beginning there was disarray. What must be emphasized is that, of course, it was a surprise attack. There was no other option. The aggressor always has the ability to surprise. But what should be noted is that from the very first minutes of the war, the people fought to the death. All the communication lines with Moscow were cut, so the people didn't receive any information about the direction of the army, but all the units fought to the death. They were surrounded but did not realize it, and this was the first time that the Nazis experienced this. Their offensive in the Soviet Union was slowed down from the very first days. After a month and a half, they were before Smolensk, a very large city. At Smolensk, they were delayed for two months, and for the first time, they suffered a sizable defeat. The Nazis lost 250,000 men. This number well surpasses everything they lost in the war with France, Belgium, Holland, etc. After five months, they arrived before Moscow, and in our country's cinemas, the Nazis had already announced the seizure of Moscow, despite only having reached the surrounding neighborhoods. But on November 7th, with the Nazis knocking at the door, Stalin still held the annual military parade in Red Square, and he made a speech that was transmitted by radio throughout the entire Soviet Union. This was a speech that galvanized the population because Stalin, with the Nazis right at the door, dared to hold a parade in Red Square, and in his speech explained that the fascists would lose the war and that the Soviet Union would liberate not only itself, but would liberate all of the oppressed countries in Europe. From Red Square, the troops went directly to the front lines, and at the same time, the Soviets drew upon all the resources they had in Siberia and elsewhere, right behind Moscow, and prepared the counterattack. In December, they counterattacked, and for the first time in history, the Nazis were forced to retreat 200 or 300 kilometers, in the process losing 500,000 men. In fact, the Battle of Moscow was the turning point during the war. After six months of warfare, after the Nazis returned during the following summer, they fought at Stalingrad, and after Stalingrad, it was incontestable that the Red Army would by itself win the war against the fascists. It was at this time that Mitterrand, French statesman, left the fascists to unite with the French resistance. The fourth thing that must be pointed out is that Stalin demonstrated the most extraordinary military capacity during this war. The way in which he steered the war was the most complex in history. Under the direction of Stalin, the party and the state in total had to make about 10,000 decisions. So this was a phenomenally complex pace of work. In the various books of the military men who were even anti-Stalin during the Soviet Union, every single one had to admit that without Stalin's direction, the army would not have won the war. And you can find the same notions in the memoirs of W. Averill Harriman, a rather well-known American diplomat who was the U.S. envoy close to Stalin during the war. This man was firmly anti-communist, but he says that Stalin was better informed than Roosevelt. He was more realistic than Churchill, and he was the most effective leader during this war. To have this kind of assessment of an enemy is rather significant. Moving on to the final point that I will briefly mention, the tenth point is that Stalin determinedly encouraged the revolutionary process and the fight for socialism throughout the entire world. It is thanks to the victory over fascism that he was able to help out the socialist forces in Eastern Europe in realizing the socialist revolutions in Czechoslovakia, Poland, and the other countries. Thanks to the defeat that he inflicted upon the Japanese army in China, he was able to decisively help the communist partisans in Manchuria and thus bring forward Mao Zedong's guerrilla victory in 1949. He also boosted the struggles in Vietnam, Korea, and all of Asia. In other words, socialism became a world system, and secondly, after the war against fascism, the anti-imperialist and anti-colonial movements took on a worldwide character. I wrote a book about Muleli, Congolese rebel. He was in school during 1944 and 1945, and even in Zaire, the anti-colonialist students would follow the progress of the Red Army. So it was the Soviet efforts that stimulated independence, even in the bush of Belgian Congo. Stalin also led the anti-imperialist struggle against the new menace to world peace, the Americans, in an absolutely substantial manner. He understood very well that after 1945, American imperialism was bound to continue the work of the Nazis. 
There's a book that we strongly advise you to read, which was published by an American and is called Blowback. It was written by a guy called Simpson in his 400-page long book, which revealed all the German, Croatian, and Ukrainian fascists that defected to the U.S. There were more than 10,000 of these fascists, among them the most prominent members of the Nazi party. Of course, our rivals will bring up Nuremberg, claiming that the Americans helped to denazify Germany and that they fought against fascism. All of these notions are utter jokes. The number one fascist spy in the Soviet Union, so the person who directed all the spy campaigns in the Soviet Union, was General Gelin, who joined the American Secret Service in the middle of the war in 1944. This was the number one person the Soviets were looking for. He was to be delivered to the Soviets and would have been hanged immediately. Instead, he went to the Americans, who immediately transported him to Washington, where he made an agreement with Alan Dulles, the head of the Secret Service who would go on to direct the CIA, and Gelin then returned to Germany to work with the Americans. There were dozens of other fascist leaders that underwent this exact process. To name a few, Eichmanns, the exterminator of the Jews' deputy, who is called Alloy Brunner, According to the statistics, Brunner was responsible for the extermination of 130,000 Jews. It was this man who became a CIA agent in the Middle East during the early 1950s. Klaus Barbie, one of the most searched for murderers in France, disappeared and was at the service of the CIA starting from 1952. His entire career was the CIA up until the point where, that he was arrested and his trial took place just a few years ago. In this case, it was public knowledge that this guy worked for the CIA. In Belgium, there was a guy who was sentenced to death, a Flemish fascist called Robert Verbellen. He joined the American Secret Service in Austria at the end of 1944. The head of the SS Secret Service, the most terrible division, Walter Schellenberg, became an agent of the English Secret Service after the war. You yourselves can create the list. There were dozens and dozens of the most prominent generals who went on to join the American Secret Service. And the entire anti-communist campaign carried out in the West starting in the 1950s was frequently led, organized, and written by specialists in the anti-communist war who worked for the Nazis. So these are the 10 merits of Stalin that not only shook the world, but should to this day inspire the oppressed masses within our country and the third world who fight against an enemy, modern imperialism, which is just as ferocious as German imperialism. The massacres that are currently organized by imperialism in crisis sometimes surpass those caused by Hitler. We don't have to look any further than what recently happened in Rwanda. And thus, to liberate ourselves from this barbaric and inhuman imperialism, as Mao Zedong said in 1936, there is only one path, the path that Stalin showed humanity.